Today's scripture reading is from Romans 15, verses 14 through 17. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly, by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. Word of the Lord. Thank you, Liza Church. You may be seated, and if you have not already, please meet me in Romans chapter 15, verses 14 through 17 will be our primary text. The right side of your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you get to Acts, and then Romans if you get to First and Second Corinthians, go back to the left. My name is Jason. I serve as one of the elders here at Church in the Square. Always good, grateful to open up God's Word with you. Um, perhaps you've noticed in the past couple of weeks uh, in Romans, Paul is uh, winding down his study, and he's been getting uh, a bit nostalgic. Um, he's been Reflecting on the big picture, if you will, of what he has communicated throughout the letter, but he's also looking back at the Old Testament and sort of connecting uh, some more dots for us as you sort of feel him begin to wind down uh, this like magnum opus of his theology and the early church's doctrine. And like a good teacher, he's sort of reaching back to the beginning of what he has said and bringing everything to a conclusion. And he's, he's doing so, or as he's doing so, he's addressing, I think, this deep fear that any group has after one of these experiences. After we've experienced perhaps some wonderful instruction at a retreat or a conference or even a meeting or event, or in this case, an apostolic letter, there's a particular fear that I think is deeply human that we all wrestle with. What's that fear? Do we have what it takes? Do we have what it takes to actually live out this very lengthy letter? Will we even remember all of it, right? Will we even remember all of what he has communicated? What do we do after this? What do we do after we have heard from the Lord through this apostolic teaching back in the real world, right? If you grew up perhaps going to summer camps, right? We call this a summer camp high. You're like, oh, it's going to be incredible. We're going to storm hell with a water pistol and nobody is ever going to be the same again. And then you get back and you're like, actually, I just kind of want a Dr. Pepper and chill, right? So what do we do with this sort of crescendo of emotion? What do we do when there's all of this enthusiasm and clarity? And I think Paul helps to address that today. Paul addresses, I think, this fear in a really beautiful way with some kind words and a reminder some kind words and reminder. He's going to tell us and them ultimately one thing through those kind words of encouragement and reminder. He's going to say, in Christ, everything you need, you already have. In Christ, everything you need, you already have. In other words, you've got what it takes. You've got what it takes. I want to encourage you because I think that's what Paul is going to do today. He's going to encourage us. He's going to give us gospel encouragement. And through Paul's gospel instruction, I want to give us a few reminders as well. And through Paul's explanation of gospel growth, I want to help us think through how do we know that we're growing? What does it look like for us to be a people that are ever growing, becoming more and more the community that God has called us to be? Ultimately, I want us all to see that in Christ, everything you need, you already have. 
Everything you need, you already have. So here's how we'll organize our time. We'll look at gospel encouragement. We'll look then at gospel instruction. And thirdly, finally, we'll look at gospel growth. So gospel encouragement, gospel instruction, and gospel growth. Let's ask for the Lord's help. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word that is clarity amidst confusion. Thank you for your spirit that brings healing in the midst of a fractured world. And thank you for your son who brings resurrection life in the midst of darkness and death. There is no one like our God. And so as you speak to us, would you speak to us uh, in our minds that it would be true and clear and intellectually satisfying? Would you speak to our hearts that it warms us away from pride and guilt and shame to know your love? And would you speak to us even as a body, that these would not just be things for our soul, but they would be things that empower us to love and good deeds to one another and to the least and the last and the lost among us. And so we marvel that your word does all of that. It speaks truth, it speaks love, and it speaks life to us. So as your word is proclaimed over us, we pray that we would be an obedient and receptive people. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul gets a bit introspective, which, you know, I love. <laughs> After a long theological and dense letter, uh, it's as if he sort of settles into this personal tone, a little bit more affectionate perhaps than some of the things that we have read about the past number of years as we've studied this letter. Uh, but to be sure, it's not the first time. Back in uh, the first chapter, Paul communicated that he loves this church, that he loves the people of Rome that he's writing to with deep affection and appreciation for their faithfulness. He says in Romans chapter 1, verse 8, he said, First, I thank God, my God rather, through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all of the world. You see, even though he had never visited Rome or had yet to visit Rome, though he was making plans to do so, he knew about and was grateful for the spiritual reputation of his brothers and sisters through his co-workers, particularly Prisca and Aquila, uh, he had heard about the wonderful reports of their community, and he wants to encourage them, keep going, you're doing great. I've heard a wonderful, wonderful report. And then here in chapter 15, Paul, though, is getting more specific about what he has heard and what he is encouraged by. Look at chapter 15, verse 14, where we'll, we'll begin our investigation. Paul says, I myself am satisfied about you. My brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Notice he says, I'm satisfied about you. A bit awkward wording in English, right? I'm not exactly sure, you know, uh, how that may strike you, but it's a bit uncomfortable, a bit awkward in the English language, but he's communicating his confidence in them. He's convinced of their character and their quality as a people and as followers of Jesus. It's like a, a good big brother. He's saying, I'm proud of you. You're doing great. Keep up the good work, right? Maybe you didn't have a big brother like that, but this sounds like a really good big brother who is encouraging and who is very specific in his encouragement. In particular, Paul is confident in their faith. Why? Because it's expressed. Their faith is expressed. This is, a vi this is vital to our understanding of what we'll simply call gospel encouragement. See, in the same way the Apostle James explains that faith in James chapter 2 by itself if it does not have works, is dead. In the same way, Paul is convinced of the Romans' faithfulness, not because of some bland religious affinity. Rather, he's satisfied because they're family, they're brothers and sisters, and they're living with faith in a really challenging environment. 
He's encouraged because that, those, those are his sisters. Those are his people. Those are his brothers. Those are his, that's his family. And he's also seeing them live with faith, not with perfection, but with faith in the middle of a complicated situation. See, emotionalism, spiritual sentimentality is not his cause for confidence. In other words, he's not just trying to be nice. He's not just trying to say, well, they seem like they're having a hard time. Let me just write them a card and just try to, like, blow some wind in their sails and get them excited. What, I don't know, like, I'm encouraged by you, right? He's not just pulling stuff out of thin air. He's encouraged because he sees fruit. He sees something in their life, and he wants to specifically call it out. That's the foundation of gospel encouragement. Gospel encouragement, church, is about identifying and sharing the specific ways God is bringing about his purposes and his character, his quality in our brothers and sisters. Paul, in fact, names three things. Did you notice that? Three specific things that I think are a model for us, a help for us, if and when we encourage our own brothers and sisters. Notice he says, I'm encouraged because they're full of goodness. That means the Roman Christians are being kind. They're being generous. They're being upright, particularly in their dealings with other people. So Paul names their goodness. He's also encouraged because, notice, secondly, they're filled with all knowledge. See, in pairing goodness with knowledge, Paul is highlighting the fact that their kindness towards others is not simply about their behavior. He's not just saying you're nice people. It's about their understanding. It's about their beliefs. See, Paul is saying godly thinking leads to godly living. In this case, because of their knowledge of salvation history, in other words, the larger story of their faith, and in particular, they know the gospel message. They know the goodness of God through Christ, and therefore, that knowledge is spilling out into living with goodness. So, Paul names their knowledge. Thirdly, he's encouraged because they're able to instruct one another. You see that? Their goodness, their knowledge, and their instruction. So not only are the Roman Christians living with goodness and knowledge, and they don't just happen to be getting those things right, they actually are understanding systematically what it is that they are doing and what it is that they are learning, and they are imparting that behavior and that understanding to other people. They aren't just keeping their nose clean and going, well, I'm good before God. Y'all better figure it out too. They're instructing those around them as well. Here's what kindness looks like. Here's what holiness looks like. Here's what obedience looks like. Here's what it looks like to trust the Lord when it feels like the sky is falling. They aren't being puffed up with their good thinking. They're not being isolated because they've got their theology on lock, right? They're sharing their wisdom of God and entrusting it to other people. Paul is encouraged by that. Don't you love that a good teacher like Paul is not intimidated by other teachers, but loves that other people are teaching each other the gospel? And so he names their instruction. Okay, I'm kind of sappy. So as Paul started to name all of these things, I started to think about you all. Um, And I've seen this in your church family. I've seen these things, the same evidence of faith through goodness and knowledge and instruction. In fact, recently I've prayed with a couple of you the past couple of weeks, who are wrestling with what it looks like to live with integrity in a really complicated work environment, trying to figure out how do I do my job well, not by appeasing those over me, by meeting the bottom line and hitting all of my numbers, but still with integrity, telling the truth, loving those in my midst with this significant pressure around you, wrestling with that, wrestling with goodness. I've watched as group members have received one another in brokenness, in weakness, 
and incompletion and doubt and anger and defensiveness and all of the messiness that is spiritual life, that is human life, receiving one another in love. We've heard stories of forgiveness with spouses, patience with extended family, and talking through things like our feasibility survey with honesty and good faith and curiosity just this week and how God has brought clarity and peace where there was confusion and tension. Church in the square, I have seen you full of goodness. In team meetings recently, I've marveled how individuals, many of you have articulated the power of biblical community, the character of God, the particulars of the gospel, our calling in the city. There have been so many meetings where it was not a deacon or an elder who said, let's not forget our neighbor. It was one of you, one of our members, one of our people saying, I think we're misguided in this. We need to remember the people who are not here yet, the people who God has called us for. You've been clear about the unique Christian perspective in the midst of tedious social issues and ask questions where it is so easy to just act like we've got it all figured out. In other words, what? You know God's Word. You love God's Word. You are living out God's Word. Church in the square, you are full of knowledge. You are full of knowledge. Group leaders, y'all are a gift. You're a gift. I'm so impressed with the ownership, the love, the time, the aptitude, the wisdom that our sisters and brothers who serve as primary disciples of our church family. Nearly all of our group leaders have no formal biblical training, and yet what they are saying is, what I know, I'm going to impart to you. What I see, I'm going to help you see. What I don't know, I'm going to journey with you and learn that with you with accuracy, with humility, with joy, with frustration, with pain, yet nevertheless continuing to press forward and in instructing one another. I've seen this in many of our parents, discipling your children in ways that no one has ever discipled you. It is hard to figure out parenting when you feel like you have, met, have not received all of the parenting that you needed. Church in the Square, you are instructing one another well. As Paul wanted his readers to know, I feel compelled just as a representative of the community to shine back that I want you to know I have seen God's hand in your life. I've seen God's hand in your families, in your groups, and in your own individual story. Your faith brings me, like it has brought Paul, genuine confidence that the Lord is building a church here that he desires to see grow. That's why we can be encouraged. That's why we can say, we've got what it takes. Not because you and I are special, but because who He among us is incredibly special. See, in Christ, what do we have? We've got goodness. We've got knowledge. We've got the ability to instruct one another. See, in Christ, everything we need, we already have. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that we don't remain diligent and we don't continue to receive God's truth. After all, Paul's letter is filled with what he's called these bold reminders, corrections, and instructions. So that's what we need to consider next. See, like in Rome, our community in Chicago needs, needs gospel encouragement, don't we? And I think one of the reasons we need gospel encouragement, if you'll allow me a brief digression, is because this is really what helps us in the midst of this epidemic of loneliness. This epidemic of loneliness that it does not just should not have the attention of the local church, but has the attention of the Surgeon General of the United States. This is what he sees 
Vivek Murthy, sees as the leading cause of frustration, pain, one of the most important issues that he and his administration are to tackle is loneliness. See, when we receive gospel encouragement, it's not just that it feels good, it reminds us that we're not alone. It reminds us that we're seen. It reminds us that we're part of a family. Can you imagine getting this letter from Paul? First of all, reading it and go, oh no, what do we do, right? Because <laughs> we've heard about some of these other letters circulating. Um, what do we do? But then ultimately to hear Paul say, I'm satisfied by you. I'm encouraged by you. Here's what I see in you. You know, think about somebody that you respect whose life you desire to emulate. You want to live like they live. And they call you up and they go, great job. You're doing it. I'm so encouraged by you. Especially for many of us who've moved to the city away from family. This is our family, right? We don't always have the opportunity to talk with those who raised us to hear how we're doing. Maybe we don't want to hear from those who raised us about how we're doing. But when we are with each other and a brother or sister who you respect goes, man, keep going. Everything you need, you already have in Christ. I see goodness. I see knowledge. I see instruction. Don't grow weary in doing good. You're like, bet. Let's do this, right? I'm excited. I'm encouraged. This is what Paul's doing. But we also still need some instruction. Right? Because when you get all jacked up and excited, you're ready to go do it, and you're like, okay, slow down. You've got everything you need, but let's just think about this a little bit more. And so Paul gives them these reminders. Paul has to address then the elephant in the room, right? If he is so encouraged, if he is so satisfied that, by his readers, why in the world then did he spend 14 chapters articulating the most dense, most exhaustive articulation of the gospel found anywhere in the Bible? Well, I think it's for one simple reason. He knows that to begin well does not mean you finish well. Or as C.S. Lewis wrote in the beginning of his wife's book on the Ten Commandments called Smoke on the Mountain, he says that every old tutor knows that those pupil who, pupils who needed our assistance the least are generally also those who acknowledge it most largely. That's what grieved Paul so much about the church in Galatia. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 6 and 7, Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. In other words, Paul is saying what? The Galatians started off really well. They were filled with goodness, filled with knowledge, filled with instruction for one another. But somewhere along the way, they began to neglect the truth the truth of the gospel. The Galatians had an access to the wealth of heaven, the wisdom in Paul and in others, and every spiritual resource that they could desire in Christ. But they failed to ask for help. They failed to ask questions. They failed to submit themselves to ongoing instruction. And Paul said they deserted the gospel. Paul doesn't want that to happen in Rome. And we should be very careful that this doesn't happen to our church here in Chicago. In the very beginning of our story, only the first five years of this story has been told so far. This is one of Paul's primary motivations, I think, for writing the book of Romans. That they and we would keep growing in the faith, that they would stay curious, that they would remain grounded in the gospel. So throughout the book, he has given extensive gospel instruction, not because he's like, you guys are all blowing it and you're not doing a good job. You better figure this out. He's saying, you're doing great, but here's how you keep doing great. You've got goodness. You've got knowledge. You've got instruction. Here's how we continue to do that. Look at verse 15, Romans chapter 15. But on some points, 
I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So Paul is essentially saying, even though I'm satisfied and deeply encouraged by your faith and the evidence of your faith, I want to remind you of the fundamentals of God's grace because that's my job. He's saying, as an apostle, Paul's calling is not simply to preach the gospel, but to define it, to define the gospel. Therefore, his responsibility has been to instruct his readers in the things of God. This is what they've received. They've received instruction from God. Now, we should be careful to keep in mind that the gospel had already been proclaimed in Rome before Paul wrote Romans. Paul didn't start Rome like he did in uh, the church in Galatia, and so his reminders aren't reminders because he told them already or because he was there from the start. Rather, he has seen and heard the evidence of the initial work of the gospel in Rome, and now he's coming to support that work. First in word, and very soon, he says, he is going to come in person to support what God has already been doing. Specifically, I think he has reminded the Roman church about three primary aspects of the gospel throughout um, Romans, and I think this is what he desires to see, not only fuel their ongoing development and further this idea that in Christ everything they need they already have, but I think it's for us too. Three big reminders. Reminder number one, that Paul has brought the Roman church throughout Romans. Remember, we're getting nostalgic. We're looking back almost like the greatest hits, like through Romans, right? Reminder number one, the gospel is the power of God. That's where we begin. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. What is the gospel? Paul says that the gospel is the power of God. But what specifically is it? It's a message and it's an announcement. The core composition of the gospel is this, that Jesus lived historically that Jesus died sacrificially, that Jesus was buried literally, that Jesus rose victoriously, and that Jesus ascended authoritatively. Those five marks of his story, that's the gospel storyline. That's the message. That's where the power is. Together, the gospel can be summarized in a singular announcement that contradicted the good news of the gospel of the day, which was what? Caesar is Lord. Paul comes along, the apostles come along, and nah, Caesar's not Lord, Jesus is Lord. That's the gospel. If we want to get down to the very essence of what the gospel is, it's the announcement that Jesus is Lord, exemplified, demonstrated, revealed in the fact that Jesus lived historically, Jesus died sacrificially, Jesus was buried literally, Jesus rose victoriously, and Jesus ascended authoritatively. When we talk about the gospel, that's what we're talking about. That's the power of God. That's the power of God to change you. That's the power of God to change me, to transform you, not just in the age to come, but right here, right now, on the spot. Church, did you know you can leave this space different than you showed up because of the power of God? You could have a pang and a longing, something that's drawing you towards sin, tenting you towards sin. And in this moment, as we sing truth, as we pray truth, as we hear truth, your heart, the composition of your heart can be transformed on the spot. That's how God works, through his word, by the power of the gospel, through the power of his Holy Spirit. Paul wants us to remember that. This reality, this truth, Paul says, is the power of God. What Jesus has done, who Jesus is to bring salvation to humanity and history, it transforms not only human souls, but it inaugurates an inbreaking kingdom of peace, of joy, of love. So Paul has boldly reminded us that the gospel is the power of God from the very start of Romans. And in many respects, it's echoed through the entire letter. This is what he wants to remind us about. 
Reminder number two, the gospel is for everyone. So one of the primary, if not the primary, tensions facing the Roman church at the time that Paul was writing was this integration between Jews and Gentiles. Gentiles, again, being non-Jewish people. So it's the Jews, those who historically were known as the people of God, and every other ethnicity, every other people group being engrafted into the same fellowship, the same church family. So Paul's repeated big idea, which weren't which we've even named this series after, is that you aren't justified by your ethnicity or by your people group. You are justified by love. You're not justified by the law. You're not justified by your obedience, your, rea- your morality, or your niceness. Anyone and everyone is justified through Christ. If salvation then is all about Christ, that means that the gospel is for everyone. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. And zooming out in chapter 5 through 6, Paul speaks about condemnation and justification in terms of humanity or universality of the gospel. Romans 6, 23, perhaps you've heard it before, for the wages of sin is what? Death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. So Paul's bold reminder, along with the, that the gospel is the power of God, is that the gospel is for everyone. Everyone has sinned, but everyone and anyone can be saved. Thirdly, Paul's third reminder throughout Romans is that the gospel changes everything. So building on the power of God and the universality of the gospel, Paul goes on to show how the gospel is not simply something for your salvation. This is something that religion often focuses in on, that that ultimately that the gospel is about how you are saved, how your sins are forgiven, and you reserve for yourself a seat in the age to come in heaven or whatever language may be used. But when we open up the scriptures, we see that there's also this framework through which we see everything through the gospel, that we're supposed to understand everything through the gospel. So the gospel is not just a message. It's not just our hope. It's not just the fact that it is a salvation story, but ultimately it's a lens by which we make sense of the world. So the gospel is our safeguard. It's a vision in the world that seeks to bring change to everything. This is why Paul said in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The thing that transforms you and the thing that gives you and me a vision to understand the will of God and what is good, what is acceptable, what is perfect, is the gospel. The gospel helps us battle sin every day. It does so primarily by giving us a vision of the new world that God is bringing in fullness, constantly inviting us to trust, love, and allege ourselves with Him rather than the powers and principalities of this world. This, I submit to you, is why following Jesus is so hard. It would be easy if you go, do you believe that Jesus died for your sins? Yeah, I'm down with that. That's good. All right, now do whatever you want. You're good, you know, when He comes back or you die. The heart, the weight of the Christian life So what do I do in my job? What do I do when I'm feeling bitter toward my neighbor? What do I do when I get an inheritance? I'm supposed to think about what to do with this. The lens of the gospel gives us understanding about what we're supposed to do in life. And that's really hard. Why? Because there's things going on in me that work in direct opposition to the gospel. I don't want to die. I don't want to lose control. I don't want to surrender. I don't want to sacrifice. And the gospel is the thing that enables us to do that and even guides and directs us to do that. See, the hope and the power of the world offers always leads to destruction and pain, but what the scriptures teach us is that the gospel empowers us to live with goodness, righteousness, and even wholeness in a fractured world. So Paul has boldly reminded us that the gospel changes everything. So the gospel is the power of God. The gospel 
is for everyone, and the gospel changes everything. And there's much that Paul does not want his readers to neglect as they continue in faith, but nearly all of what he says hangs on one of those three ideas, one of those three reminders. And in his reminding, his encouragement, I think, takes on a fuller meaning. This is what he's excited about. They're getting it. His readers are understanding this. Paul's gospel encouragement and gospel instruction that are really instructive for us. Why? Because he is combining affection and truth. He's combining not just a nice thing that sounds good, but something that is real, something that is true. I wonder, is your encouragement of others like that? Is mine? Honestly, I think I'm prone, as I've considered this, to a kind of encouragement that's more like flattery, right? We preachers' kids, especially we preachers, are really good at flattery, just saying a nice thing to make you feel good so you come back next week, right? But in chapter, in the next chapter, actually, uh, Paul will warn people about this. In Romans 16, verse 18, he says, For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Pretty sure he's talking about 21st century preachers. Pretty sure he's talking about how easy it is for flattery to fawn the ego of the flatterer and the flattery. In other words, it's nice words without any truth. It's not seeking to understand how the gospel is forming and instructing someone. It's just saying something nice so that I can please people or so that you can please people or so that people feel good about themselves or about us. Perhaps you're like, yeah, flattery is dumb. Why do you do that? That's so ridiculous. But maybe you're saying nothing at all. You know someone is full of goodness and knowledge, but you just don't tell them because you're like, well, they know. And if I tell them, then they're going to get a big head and they won't be good anymore and they won't be full of knowledge anymore. And so we're not going to say anything at all because we don't want to mess up how good they are, right? And so we don't encourage each other at all. And I think we move back and forth to these polar extremes. I don't want to flatter someone and just like fawn their ego, but I also don't want to puff somebody up, you know, and, do, uh, and not talk to them. Someone else is going to talk to them at all. See, silence is pre- presuming that a person knows their quality or that we fear that ultimately our encouragement will go to their heads. In other words, it's truth without any words. And so what Paul is modeling for us is a kind of affection that is spoken. And so my sisters and brothers, if someone has encouraged you if you have seen something in someone's life, if your group leader has spoken truth and wisdom to you, if your brother or sister in your group or just someone on a Sunday morning showed up, asked a question, handed you a cup of coffee, or maybe they just looked you in the eye and treated you like a human being when you went through a week when it felt like everything else was true about you, tell them that you encouraged me. I saw goodness in you. I heard truth come from you. I watched you as you instructed your child when they were screaming at your face, trying to help them see the gospel in an otherwise impossible situation. Way to go. Keep going. See, what we're going to learn next is that when gospel encouragement meets ongoing gospel instruction, this community can experience real gospel growth, true transformation, true healing, and maturity. In fact, just a couple of weeks ago, I received some encouragement that healed a wound that was caused about 10 years ago that I didn't even know was still there. I had no idea I was still carrying that. But when they spoke truth to me, a lie from the past popped up and went, wow, I've been believing that. 
There's power and encouragement. It transforms, it heals, something that flattery and silence can never achieve. See, Paul concludes his nostalgic reflections with a so what, meaning he shows us the implication or result of his satisfaction. Look at verses 16 and 17. Paul says, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified with the Holy Spirit, or rather by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. One of the problems that Paul had no doubt heard about in Rome, despite their faithfulness, was that we have great evidence to suggest that these house churches that were popping up in Rome started to meet in sort of a monolith. There were Jewish house churches and there were non-Jewish house churches. And so they were deeply divided. And so Paul doesn't just want them to agree on the same message and stay in their own separate house churches in this case, right? He wants them to reorient or change their habits and their social structures as a result of the gospel. He wants them to grow. He doesn't just want them to learn something cognitively. He wants them to embody this reality of the gospel. That's what sanctification is about. Sanctification is not about you and I learning more facts about Jesus. Sanctification is about us becoming more incarnate with what we believe and what we know to be true. This is the beauty of how Jesus has even modeled and empowered us to this. He doesn't just send a word. He sends himself. He comes. He embodies it. Scholar N.T. Wright explains that the death and resurrection of Jesus is for Paul not simply a historical reality that has created a new situation, but a pattern that must be woven into every aspect of church life. In other words, if non-Jewish people are accepted by God, they ought to be accepted by Jews, and they should not have separate house churches in this case, and we should not be divided, because the gospel changes what you think what you believe, what you trust, how you act, your very being, how you perceive your body, how you look at the world, it grows you to look more like Christ. It grows all of us together to look more like Him. Are you picking up on this, church? The gospel is not just something to go, this is what the content is. You got the same content? All right, let's be in a church together. It's we're becoming something together that the gospel is shaping in us. Sanctification is, as Wright suggests, the process of weaving the gospel into our lives. This is deeply uncomfortable, yet it is deeply liberating. It's realizing that in Christ, everything we need, we already have. Everything we need, we already have. The gospel, then, is not merely for the bedside of conversion. The gospel is for all of life. The gospel is for your marriage. When you've got tension in your marriage, consider the gospel. It's not like medicine that, oh, we talked about the gospel, now everything is fine. The gospel charts a path forward for us about how we walk even when we feel disunity. The gospel is for your trauma. To be sure, we need community around us, professional help often to walk through the pain of our past, but we also need the gospel giving clarity about what is true and what is not, what is light and what is darkness. The gospel is for your work. The gospel is for your school choice. The gospel is for your friendship. The gospel is for your sex life or lack thereof. The gospel is for your money. The gospel is for your shame. The gospel is for your vacation. Did you know that when you go on vacation, you still need the gospel? I know I do. The gospel is for your ego. The gospel is for your weakness. The gospel is for your strength. The gospel is for men. The gospel is for women. The gospel is for children. The gospel is for adults. The gospel is for your joy. The gospel is for your humility. Are you picking up what I'm throwing down, church? The gospel is for everything. It's meant to reorient all of who you are. 
this is the kind of community we're after at Church in the Square. This is who we want to become. This is who I want to become. This is who I'm watching you become, who I'm becoming with you. The kind of community in which the gospel brings transformation. Don't you want to tell stories in 10 years that took 10 years to tell? In other words, that it's real, it's vibrant, it's substantive, something that the only, only the gospel could do. See, the gospel can work in a second, just like the resurrection. Jesus was dead one minute and he was alive the next. But sometimes it takes time. It's like Thomas going, wait a second, God. Can I, can I, or Jesus, can I see your hands? I gotta, I gotta figure this out. What do you mean this is still you? He's asking questions. He's taking time. He's being thoughtful. Being sanctified is a power of the Holy Spirit who is transforming us by the renewal of our minds, the transformation of our bodies. It's this holistic thing. It may take time. And yet the gospel is always going to be the pathway that leads us to fruitfulness and flourishing. See, we've been giving a ma- given a massive help here in Paul's words. Gospel growth is a result of gospel encouragement and gospel instruction. What's that mean? It means when we see goodness, what someone is becoming, and we see knowledge, what someone is learning, we should tell them. When we begin to do that, when we begin to highlight that, this is what causes us to grow, right? You, you know those words of encouragement, somebody even just says, like, you have a nice shirt on. I don't forget that stuff for a week. People love that shirt. I'm going to keep wearing that shirt. I'm never going to get rid of that shirt, you know? How much more then when someone says, I needed the wisdom that you spoke to me that day. I'm going to keep sharing that wisdom. Are you you with me, church? I'm going to keep loving like that. When you showed up and no one else came that day, when you showed up, you were just with me. You didn't even say anything. You were just with me. That changed my life. I'm going to keep showing up. Do you see gospel encouragement from gospel instruction leads to gospel growth? It also means when we don't see that goodness, when we don't see that knowledge, as the Lord has instructed, we remind each other of the power of the gospel. In other words, when someone shares something that you go, man, that's misleading. We, we can't talk like that. We got we to gotta hash that out. Why did you say that? Or why didn't you show up that way? That's where the community is formed too. You said, I could have really used encouragement there. I really needed instruction there. See, the gospel is for everyone. The gospel changes everything. The gospel is the power of God, and it's also how we grow together as a people Gospel growth, I think, is on John's mind when he writes to the scattered generation of believers in the first century. They were undergoing incredible hardship. And in his message, he essentially defines gospel growth as walking in the light. Hear this from 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 and following. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But church in the square, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The gospel is the light, the fullness of Jesus' lordship and affection. And we're encouraged not to just walk in the light. We're told that in the light we'll be fully known and fully enjoyed. We have fellowship. That's beautiful. This is what we are all after, I think, and yet we we are all terrified about. This is what we all want, but what we're all terrified of. See, this seems great, right? Then, Then why is it so elusive? Why is it so hard to have this kind of community, this kind of people, this kind of life? Well, because there's a lie you believe, and there's a lie I believe almost every single day. 
about life together, about our sanctification. It's a lie I believed on Sunday night at a meeting with our elder team, and I didn't even know it until they pointed it out. We believe that if we are truly known, then we won't be loved. We believe that if we're truly known, then we'll, that's why we don't go in the light. We know the light's going to expose everything. Can't hide in the light, right? Adam and Eve knew it. So when, when God comes in the, uh, into the garden, what do they do? They go hide. They're like, it's too bright out here. We're naked. We don't want the shame. We're going to go hide. In other words, if you really know my temper, if you really know my greed, if you really know my judgmentalism, if you really know my racism, if you really know that I battle with lust every single minute of every day, if you know my weakness and my frailty, if I really walk in the light, then I won't have fellowship. I'll be rejected. So what do we need when we're believing that lie? What do we do to overcome this lie? We need encouragement. We need truth. We need instruction. We need reminders that that is a lie and it's not the truth. In fact, your father doesn't talk like that. My father doesn't talk like that. He doesn't say, clean yourself up before you step in the light. He says, step into the light and I'll clean you up. Step into the light and I'll clean you up. The late pastor and author, Tim Keller, who we quote, I don't know, like every paragraph, every Sunday, uses this exact language when he describes the essence of the gospel. He says, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. That's flattery. To be known and not love is our greatest fear, but to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of self-righteousness, and fortifies us from any difficulty life can throw at us. Church, that's the gospel. The good news of Jesus, you have been fully known and fully loved. You've been completely seen in your brokenness, weakness, and sinfulness. It's been displayed and demonstrated on the cross, and yet on that same cross, God is saying, and I accept you, and I love you, and I want you, and I've changed you, and you are mine. Paul said this too, Romans 5, but God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners. Not after, not before, while. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's when he bestowed his love on us. And the more we get this into our lives, the more we speak that kind of encouragement to one another, the more we live out this ethic that I see you and I love you, that I love you and I see you. I know you and nothing you could demonstrate to me will make me go. We're in this together. Then what we are embodying is this reality that in Christ, everything you need, you already have. The more we embrace fellowship, encouragement, instruction, in the light, with the Lord, the more we grow, the more we become who he's called us to be. I think that's actually already who we are, who we are becoming And when we live as we are, our Heavenly Father is satisfied and proud to call us His children. So church in the square, hear this. In Christ, everything you need, you already have. Let's pray. Father, we need your help with this truth, with this kind of love. Some of us have things we've been hanging on to and not telling anybody for a really long time and perhaps for good cause. Perhaps the last time we shared that kind of intimacy or that part of our story, we were rejected and hurt. 
And so I pray, Father, that you would help us in a fresh way to trust you with our story, with our pain, with our shame, with our wounds, with our need for healing, so that ultimately we will grow. And along the way, would you make us an encouraging church, a church that speaks gospel encouragement and gives gospel reminders so that we can see real gospel growth begin to take root, not just for the good of our brothers and sisters who are part of this fellowship, but also our friends, our neighbors, the least and the last and the lost in our community. So would you glorify yourself through your church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.